Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Your life is not just a series of present tenses, you know, ordered as integers in one great scroll. Everything behind you in the scroll is part of your present tense. And um, you don't want to forsake it. You want to kind of honor all of it. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. There's a line in Rachel Kushner's recent collection of essays, which is titled The Hard Crowd, that I wanted to start by reading because it was sort of germane to the conversation we had and, and helped set it up. She writes, in this sense, a conversion narrative is built into every autobiography. The writer purports to be the one who remembers, who saw, who did, who felt, but the writer is no longer that person. In writing things down, she is reborn, and yet still defined by the actions she took, even if she now distances herself. 
In all a writer's supposed self-exposure, her claim to authentic experience, the thing the writer omits reporting on is her galling idea that her life might become a subject put to paper. A lot of our conversation centered around whether one should bother formulating memory as something that can be reliably narrated, and and on her reluctance to tell any story from life as if with a moral or an arc of transformation, um, which she suggested risks falling prey to a self-mythologizing impulse. At the same time, she says that she wants her writing to capture who she is. Um, and there's a, a lot in the quote that I read and elsewhere in, in her essays that suggest that there is an element of... Um, myth and magic to the way that she thinks about narrative. It's a it's an interesting conversation with a lot of good productive tensions in it. Kushner is the author of the novels The Mars Room, The Flamethrowers, and Telex from Cuba. She's also, of course, an essayist. Um, the Hard Crowd collects her published essays from the last few decades. Here's Rachel Kushner. Well, first I'd say, um, in listening to you describe this concept of thresholds, I guess I had my first reaction was to ask myself um, and you if there's not a danger in categorizing memory, types of memories that were productive, um, if there's not a danger in um, people kind of presenting pre-mythologized answers. Like, it seems like a bit of a tidy package to say, so this thing happened to me and I was irrevocably made different and in fact made better because then I was able to produce X, Y, or Z. Um, Maybe there's no getting around trying at least to account for... um, I guess the conditions of possibility that made for art. But I also tend to think that whatever a person tells herself about it is not probably going to be the truth. Um, But in terms of telling stories, maybe, you know, certain experiences stay in the mind. And sometimes what stays in the mind is a feeling of an intensification of the present tense, like, this made me feel very alive. And maybe that feeling itself later made way for a reordering of my understanding of life that allowed me to describe life and render it in novels in a different way, something like that. Um, When you said that you were in Las Vegas, I actually thought immediately of a scene of me leaving Las Vegas. um, Unlike the character that Nicholas Cage plays in that amazing movie, Leaving Las Vegas, leaving in a car uh, rather than drinking myself to death as he does in the film. Um, And the car was actually the car that's on the cover of this book, my 1964 Ford Galaxy, which I had road tripped across the country with a friend. And we had stopped on the way we were traveling west And we stopped in Las Vegas for a few days. As young people with very little money, um, you can stay in a decent hotel in Las Vegas since they're going to make it back from most people 
uh, through the money that they spend at the slots. I never spend any money at slots. It was kind of like a personal refusal on my part. Like I'll go to Las Vegas, I'll take in a lot of what's there and I, and I won't even cross the threshold of gambling, you know, because maybe once you do, then you're on a slippery slope to trying to increase your odds of winning or what you perceive as your odds of winning um, by feeding more and more coins into a slot machine. Um, So we stayed there for a few days and it was incredibly hot. It was summer and I think it was 130 degrees, literally. And it seemed like we were the only girls out walking on the strip. Most people drove their air-conditioned new car from casino to casino, parked in an underground structure, and then entered through an elevator from the parking structure so that they never had to touch the air with their bodies and experience the fact that it was 130 degrees. Um, Maybe it's 125. When we left Las Vegas, there's a grade that you take. Is is it 15? I can't remember. Yeah, it's 15. Um, So leaving Las Vegas, you take this grade and it's a long, steep grade going up out of Las Vegas. And then you pass this place called Jean, J-E-A-N, that has an enormous thermometer. Are you familiar with that? (laughs) No. Um, Yeah, it has a huge thermometer. And I think they have like a mini casino there. It's just a very small town. Um, I remember seeing the thermometer like on the right side of the highway and I think it said something crazy like 128 degrees or 132 degrees. And it's even hotter than Las Vegas in Jean, which is maybe why um, the site they offer to see is a thermometer. Um, And I, I was driving my 1964 Ford Galaxy, which then was already, you know, a seriously vintage car, um, meaning that if you're dealing with that kind of heat, it's not clear that the car is going to manage um, to function. And I had the heat going, you know, full blast with all the fans blowing so that it could take some heat off of the engine, which is, you know, actually a surprisingly effective trick if you're worried about overheating uh, in an old car like that. I had, um, you know, topped off my radiator fluid before leaving. And I was going up this grade and staying conservatively in the far right lane so that I could just, you know, rumble along at 35 miles an hour up the grade and not push the car and keep the heat on and hope to make it. And on the right side of the road was a white, brand new Rolls Royce silver cloud broken down and a man standing next to it very well-dressed, obviously wealthy fellow, um, you know, SOL, as they say. Um, this is in the era before cell phones. It was probably the summer of 1993, I'm guessing. And I couldn't pull over to help him. I, not that I, what would I do um, with a Rolls Royce broken down? I mean, those are, every part on those is handmade. Um, I, you know, there was, maybe there was an emergency call box and he was waiting for a tow truck, but I wasn't, the feeling wasn't exactly gloating. It was amusement, I guess, at this strange, um, antipode, me in my surprisingly functioning antique car, um, him in his brand new car broken down on the side of the road, 
um, the specter of Las Vegas, you know, w- which uses the promise of a windfall to attract people, a guy who didn't need a windfall if he's driving a Rolls Royce. And I guess it was just about um, story in a way. Like you pass through a moment that can be looked at and allow you to sort of, I don't know, galvanize your energy as a storyteller or as somebody who's interested in character. I never put that in anything, but um, it stayed with me. I like, I like your query sort of of the, of the prompt or of the premise itself. Um, because I think that it's true that, that we can often, if we're going to deliver a fully formed, beautiful story of something that's happened to us, we tend to be, I think you use the word pre-mythologizing it, um, which, which I think is a, is a pitfall of that exercise. Um, but one other way of thinking about this, which I, you, you sort of touch on a little bit actually in the story you just told, which I, I want to ask you more about, um, is thinking of a threshold as a liminal place, um, as a, as a time when you were in between, um, one, one world and another world or one self and another self or one state and another state. Um, and it sounds interestingly like what you're describing. I mean, a road trip journey is always a little bit that kind of, that kind of story of being, um, moving between places. Um, and maybe you, you also write about youth as that kind of place and time too. Um, but I'm curious how the, this, this passing moment that feels like it coalesced the present tense for you, um, was that part of a pattern of such moments that were, you know, then, then made you realize, uh, the kind of, the kind of moments in life that you want to make into art? No, honestly, um, (laughs) because I think I was already somebody who would be interested in a moment like that. I mean, I already wanted to be a writer at that point and, um, and had been interested in literature for a long time. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to say about it. I, you know, not to turn this into a session or something. It's just that when you mentioned Las Vegas, that was what I thought of, um, was that guy on the side of the road. I mean, in some part of my mind, he's still there waiting for the tow truck to come, (laughs) you know, and I'm still trundling along slowly in the right lane going, huh, me in a 30 year old car, him in a brand new Rolls Royce. He's waiting for a tow truck. I'm not. But again, it wasn't about gloating. It was just noticing these differences and thinking about, um, that place and just the kind of the wall of heat and how inhospitable it is and how they erected these casinos with a kind of interconnected system of parking structures where people can just go from one air-conditioned vehicle to um, another air-conditioned container, but it's a casino. I went back to Las Vegas um, just more recently, a few years ago for the Black Mountain Reading Festival. Is that what it's called? I went to this festival and it was in a outdoor um, amphitheater where we all read. It was a really beautiful location and um, amazing turnout. A lot of people who drive out to the desert to sit in this chilly, um, you know, 
open amphitheater under the stars. It was a really nice vibe and a cool setting. And then we, I guess we went to a party or something. And then we all went back to our (laughs) hotels and, um, the hotel is like in that is it's downtown Las Vegas, which had attracted me the first time that I went like where glitter gulch is. And there's a kind of covered, um, strip mall. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, I think you're talking about Fremont street. Yeah. Fremont street. I'd been there before. Um, but I'd never stayed there and they put us up in this hotel and I went into the gift shop. Oh, it was the, um, the El Cortez, which, mm-hmm. um, I actually put into my novel, the Mars room. There's a reference to the El Cortez, which is a very specific kind of place in terms of who goes there, who's a loyal regular at the El Cortez. I hadn't been in there in a long time. And then I was suddenly staying there and I went into the gift shop to get a t-shirt for my husband, uh, advertising the El Cortez. And that shirt that I brought home smelled so strongly of cigarettes that we had to put it on the porch for a month, um, like (laughs) washing it didn't wash out the smell because they allow smoking in that casino. So all the rooms smell really strongly like cigarettes. And then in the middle of the night, I was woken up by um, Frank Sinatra. Dun, 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 dun. And it played over and over again until dawn when I finally got up and um, went downstairs and got some coffee and thought, I'm too old for the El Cortez. Whereas, <laughs> you know, that first pass through Las Vegas, I'm sure I wouldn't have even noticed those kinds of things. Um, what else was I going to say about that? Oh, and we stayed, I, I didn't stay, sorry. I, I went up to the room of the writer Heidi Julevitz at the El Cortez and it's a penthouse that apparently has, is now no longer exists. Like they've demolished it and reconfigured it into something new and boring and, um, not special, but it was previously, I guess, the penthouse of the person who had owned that casino. And it was filled with custom, incredible sort of like 1960s, um, Hollywood Regency style details with like pink, um, beveled mirrors around the bathtub and these outrageous chandeliers. And, um, everybody was saying that it was, Uh, haunted and it seemed like a pretty neat place to stay so probably the people who stayed there could have threshold stories for you In terms of this idea of like passing from one space into another and then feeling changed by it, I think that also is um, lends itself to people's mythologizing, which doesn't suggest for the purposes of this interview that I'm going to refuse to try to find those spaces and what they are for me, but rather that I feel beholden to offer a kind of caveat that I'm I'm not sure I quite believe people when they start putting their own life into a sort of tidy narrative structure of causality. Huh. That's a really interesting thing to hear, given that you've just published a book of memoir, of essays, many of which are memoir. Um, what, how, how do you feel like you, that distinction is made between like talking person to person versus putting, putting a memory or a story of your life down in a book? Right. 
Well, it was, it, I didn't say I'm opposed to uh, talking about personal material, um, but rather answering a question about a conceiving of life in a particular way where you pass through, um, like you said, a liminal space or threshold and then feel yourself irrevocably changed. I don't think that any of the essays in the book um, use that kind of structure or argumentation, but a lot of them actually are not memoir pieces. Um, you know, there's essays on Marguerite Ross, Dennis Johnson, mm -hmm. Cormac McCarthy, Jeff Koons, um, ship captains who go down, who leave their ship first instead of mm -hmm. last. There's an essay about the Italian writer, Nani Balestrini in factory politics in Italy. I, a lot of what I try to share with people um, in these essays is about experiences that I've had and bodies of information that have interested me that I try to then synthesize and share with the reader. Um, and less emphasis on me and maybe no emphasis on personal growth. Hmm. Um, I mean, in, unless you could think of an example from the book that might be helpful for me because then I could expand upon it or maybe understand better. Well, we, de I mean, there definitely doesn't need to be an emphasis on personal growth or even necessarily on personal transformation. But when I was reading, I, um, I, I really enjoyed the hard crowd. And in particular, I actually, I really loved the pieces on Dura and Coons and Dennis John, this sort of more um, yeah. critical, critical essays, um, reviewing the work of other artists. Um, so I, I definitely don't mean to imply that it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a collection of memoir. Um, but some of the, you know, the framing essays, like the first essay and the last essay, uh, in particular are, you know, seem to look back at your youth, right? Um, and at a, or at a period of your youth. And a lot of the, you know, some of the, the reception I've seen for the book talks about um, the way that this book reads like someone who has um, survived and left behind an era and is turning around to look back um, when many others maybe did not survive that era. Um, and, and I suppose m maybe my question is, or one question I have for you is, is that what it, does, does that feel like an accurate description of what you were trying to do in essays like that? Um, or were you after something else completely? Um, sorry, trying to do what? To sort of turn around uh, and look back. There's a, there's even a, a line um, in, uh, late in the book, so many of my hours are spent like this, but with me is the camera panning backward into scenes that are not retrievable. I am no longer busy being born. Um, and so there is a real feeling, at least for me, when I read this book of a, of a, of a before and an after, or of, a, of an author who's looking back into memory. I mean, you know, the book is, those are essays that I wrote over the last 20 years. So um, some of them, it was a matter of putting them into order and thinking about what this book would be. Um, it's not just me compiling everything I've written over the last 20 years. In, and instead, I just picked particular pieces that I thought could sort of talk to each other and form one through line 
um, the first essay about the motorcycle race, I published that in 2000. So I wrote it in like the first draft of it, I probably wrote in 1998. Um, and that, that motorcycle race took place in 1994. So it was only four years earlier. So I wasn't really looking back, you know, I mean, I was looking back in the sense that four years had gone by, which if you're in your twenties is, you know, um, a chunk of your adulthood. Um, but it was close enough and fresh enough that I still remembered all of the details from, you know, that time and those people. And I'm still friends with, um, a lot of those people from the motorcycle scene in San Francisco, um, and that maybe one difference between us is that a lot of them have kind of made professional lives based on uh, those interests and already had at that time, but continued to, whereas I went on to become a writer and basically gave up riding motorcycles, as I say in the piece, because I just decided that they're too dangerous. But it was, so it wasn't written from a point of um, great distance at all, but much you know, almost immediate. And I'm glad that it was because uh, I wouldn't have remembered so many of those details had I not written them down. I mean, almost none of them in a way. I would have remembered, um, I would have shaped and distorted probably the sequence and the feel and the details in order to construct a memory, which is what we do. And there's some truth to what we construct Sorry, there's it's LA, so there are helicopters buzzing <laughs> okay. overhead. LAPD and their crazy hobby, which costs six thousand dollars an hour, apparently. Um, if I'd waited until much later to write that, then I probably would have ended up with something that was more kind of calcified in terms of what it is, um, like a myth. You know, I did this and this happened, and this is what it was about, and rather it's meant to give a kind of close up living view of um, a world and people, a subculture and the kinds of things that mattered to us. And the way that I felt when I was on that race. And I think that's why I paired it with the essay about um, going and staying in this refugee camp, um, this Palestinian refugee camp that's technically inside of Israel. And in both cases, they are essays that are meant to kind of give a granular on the ground view of an experience, you know, sort of play by play um, and hopefully invite the reader to feel like they might feel the same were they in that experience. Um, so those weren't, you know, from a distance. The essay that you read from that quote, The Hard Crowd, um, I don't quite know if it accords with, you know, these, like, um, the critical reception that you mentioned. Um, like, you know, when people are looking for a headline, something is going to get lost, you know, some nuance. And there's been a bit of emphasis on, like, fearlessness or recklessness or, you know, um, people who died. And there is some of that in that essay, for sure. But this idea of being somebody who's both busy being born and busy dying, to quote um, that interesting sort of couplet from uh, a Bob Dylan song, isn't really about loss or death. 
to me, the way that I interpret it. Um, I mean, I'm a bit explicit about it in the essay, but to me, it's about the time when you are still taking on new experiences and the time when you start to um, spend a lot of your time reflecting on and being in conversation with just internally people and places and scenes that you'll never see again, not because it was like, you know, a sordid world or a lost world or a world with a high mortality rate, risky world, but rather just by virtue of the process of age, um, that so much of your life is already lived. And those memories start to sort of accumulate and become um, a part of your daily texture of what it means to be alive. I think that it's a natural process that probably happens to everyone where you just become more reflective. And um, I realized it was happening to me kind of all at once and wrote this essay and it became the title essay for the book. It was the last thing I wrote, you know, I ordered the essays and then basically sat down and wrote this. And it was meant to kind of tie everything together, I guess, and give some account of um, who I am. I could share an anecdote that maybe sort of... um, comes to mind as a moment when I realized I was sort of entering this state. Um, I really love this British movie called The Leather Boys that was directed by Sidney Fury and came out in, I believe, 1964 or 63. Um, It's one of my favorite films. And actually this month, I'm going to introduce a screening of it at Metrograph, albeit online due to the pandemic. Um, And, uh, I had introduced a screening of The Leather Boys at a movie theater here in LA, CineFamily, which no longer exists. And Sydney Fury, who lives in LA, came to the screening and we did a Q&A together afterward. And um, he's a really vibrant, amazing, charming, charismatic man. Um, he's also in his early, 90, his early 80s, um, and uh, when I was talking to him afterward, doing this Q&A in front of an audience, I asked him about the people who were in The Leather Boys. Some of the people he cast were non-actors. Other people that he cast were kind of legendary theater actors uh, from London. And I said, what was it like working with, I can't remember their names now, but you know, so-and-so and so-and-so, these legendary theater actors, what was it like working with them? And he said, you know... I was so young and so busy with myself and so rooted in the present tense and moving fast and ambitious and trying to do things. And he said that, um, I, I, I just didn't spend that much time with them. I wasn't curious about their lives. And he said, but now that I've moved into a much more reflective state of life, I've realized what opportunity was lost. Um, what was lost on me, which was that he said, if I could do it over, I would have taken each one of those people out to dinner and interviewed them and asked them all about their lives. And I thought it was that phrase, now that I've entered the more reflective state of life, 
And even though he's a good 30 years older than I am, I thought to myself, sitting on that stage with a microphone in my hand, that's what's happening to me. Mm. So it's a good thing because um, it means hopefully that one starts to, you know, as I say in the essay, to sort and order and tally what came previously, which has enormous import because it's your life. Your life is not just a series of present tenses, you know, ordered as integers in one great scroll. Everything behind you in the scroll is part of your present tense. And um, you don't want to forsake it. You want to kind of honor all of it. Um, And maybe it can change how you approach the present also. If, you know, unlike Sidney Fury, when he was young, I could have the presence of mind to um, ask other people about their lives and learn from them when they, when I have the opportunity. Yeah. That seems to have so much resonance with the, the process of putting together this, this book, the hard crowd, as you're saying, it's, it's work over, you know, a period of decades. When you sat down to do that, um, or when you over probably many occasions sat down to work on that, what, what was your process of sifting through all the things that you had written and deciding what you wanted to compile and present here? Yeah. Um, so actually it was a pretty quick process. I mean, it did take a few tries as maybe you just guessed in your question. Um, first I compiled everything I'd written that I thought I would feel comfortable, uh, sharing once again, like that I I thought was good enough to earn its place in a book. And then I divided them by subject matter, essays on art, essays on film, this and that. And I knew right away and looking at them divided that way that I had no interest in putting together a book that would be subdivided by subject matter because even that right there seems too arbitrary. Oh, the people who are interested in art will read the art essays. Here she is on this subject. Here she is on that subject. It almost seems to obviate the need for a book because to me, a book should not really be divisible by subject. It should all be each part presenting one complicating facet of who the writer is. Um, so then I decided, like, I knew that the book would start with the motorcycle essay. Um, it was the first thing I had ever published, but also it gives a pretty full account of who I was before I was a writer or at least one version of who I was and go from there. It would be weird if an essay like that came later. I just thought that's kind of, that's the opening scene. Um, And then I decided that the collection should have a kind of um, a movement where the resonance that an essay ends with should sort of like be picked back up by the beginning of the next essay, like passing the torch. Mm. Sounds a little corny, but it was, it was a very clear way for me to organize things like the end moment and feel of an essay and where you are there as a reader. And then the sort of um, spark gap, if you will, of moving to the next essay and feeling like you're on some kind of continuous thread, not 
overly tying things together or in an obvious way, but in terms of feel like the register resonance of the thing so that the essays started to talk to each other. Like you go from the motorcycle essay to then me in this refugee camp, you know, thrumming with activity and people and a very young boy zooming past in a car. He's way too young to be driving. Um, I mean, young kids can learn to drive. I'm just not used to seeing it all that often. Um, and it was me as a, you know, mature adult writer being sent to this place, um, to try to kind of order it and report on it and make sense of it for myself. Um, so with each essay, I was doing that and I winnowed them down and I loved cutting things. I mean, now I think, oh, why didn't I include this? Why didn't I include that? But at the time it seemed like it was best to err um, on a more kind of, to be more stringent with myself, like to, for something to make the cut, it had to fit exactly into this kind of line that I felt I was building one thing to the next, to the next, I don't know, like runners passing the baton or something. And I knew that it would end with the title essay. And then I sat down and um, wrote that essay. It was really fun for me, actually, because I, I mean, for years I'd thought, well, I could publish a book of essays, but I felt no need or rush to do that. And then when I got the concept with this title and the order and the sequence, I started to realize that this book um, had a lot of echoes and resonances in it that I hadn't really anticipated that it would. And um, I grew comfortable with the idea that it does have these more memoir-like pieces. Like, you know, there's a piece of my whole history bartending in San Francisco, which, you know, maybe doesn't matter to some people, but it matters to me. And it's presented in a way that's meant to entertain the reader, and perhaps also argue for experience as part of the formation process for the writer slash artist. Everything you've done in your life is going to have some logic to it in terms, for better or worse, uh, in terms of how it shapes you as a writer and maybe comes to account for the work that you've already made. And, um, and I wanted the book to be able to do that. And I hadn't really anticipated that, that I would want it to do that or that it would. One other thing that I wanted to ask you about um, occurred to me when you were telling that story about Las Vegas and about that moment uh, where you passed the guy in the Rolls Royce that had broken down. Um, and it was something that had occurred to me when I was reading, when I've read your work before, um, which is the the way that a writer, maybe particularly a writer, um, is often both living an experience and observing the experience or cataloging the experience in some way, that there's some, a slight sense of um, remove, that you're not purely in subjecthood, you're also kind of observing objectively the things that are that are happening to you um and i wonder how you think about that um yeah i mean i think that that also is part of like the sheer alienation of being young being a child and being an adolescent is that you're often doing both but there's something about a framework of the world and even these ideologies of childhood where you feel like 
you're supposed to just be purely in the present and happy and, you know, eating cake and loving birthday parties or going to school or playing with your friends. But there's some part of everyone, I think, that is a little bit separate from that. And it's almost like your soul is sort of trying to figure out like how it fits into your body and what part of it gets to stay free of the body if the body is a metaphor for the person plunged into the present without much opportunity for reflecting on the present while the present is happening, like in the instant, if the present is a succession of instants. Um, And I'm hesitant to say like, oh, I'm somebody who always felt a lot of that distance because it's a kind of way of saying, you know, I'm a person of great profundity. Um, Who knows what it's like to be inside other people's minds That is really, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to let myself have this digression. That is one of the remarkable things about novels. I actually think that among art forms, it is the one that gets you closest to what it's like to have the experience of being inside someone else's mind. And particularly when I read other writers on their adolescence, I think about that distance you're talking about, like Edward Louise book, The End of Eddie. Do you know that? I haven't read it. I've heard of it, but I haven't read Uh, it. Yeah, it's really amazing. I was going to call it a novel. And maybe that's because in France, they're less concerned with uh, genre, whether something is a novel or nonfiction. I think it's just roman either way. Um, I think he probably, you know, to his American readers would call it nonfiction. Um, In any case, that book renders this sort of heartbreaking distance and also up-closeness of a set of feelings that he has as an adolescent. Um, In a more practical manner of writing these essays that are in this book, some of them, I think, required a bit of oscillation between trying to um, capture for all time, like set in the record, how I felt in certain moments, like for instance, in Shuafat, I don't know why I keep coming back to that essay, but in Shuafat, how I felt being immersed in um, a place that where 85,000 people were living in one square kilometer, how that felt, you know, that just the effective resonance of it and the kids that I met there and um, this guy Baha Nababta that I spent all this time with, um, I oscillated between recapturing that and trying to kind of set it, you know, for the record and also questioning what it is that I had recorded in those moments. And as I say in the essay, when I went back and looked at my notes, there were contradictory traces in my notes that um, disrupted my own memory, which I had formed even while uh, you know, I was in the camp and having these experiences. I had told myself that it was a completely safe, very positive, um, that Baha Nababta was very hopeful about the future. And in my notes, I had written that uh, his life had been threatened and that he'd told me that. And, you know, lo and behold, 10 days after I left, he was assassinated in the st- one of the, on one of the streets that we had walked down t- together. And I had denied that even as I was writing that note down, I didn't um, place emphasis on it 
in my own mind. And so part of the process of writing, and then I, you know, I included that and kind of called myself out for it in a way in my essay, not called myself out, but included the note to demonstrate for the reader the way that memories can conveniently start to edit out um, details and facts that disrupt with the narrative that we're forming even as we're inside of an experience in an immediate manner. Rachel, this has been um, this has been so interesting and fun to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun for me to recall that memory about Ro- the Rolls Royce. I really don't know what it means, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's maybe one of the things, though. Like, that happens to me all the time, where there, I have these, like, crystal clear memories, and I don't know why they're the ones I... You know, like, why are they the ones that I remember? What is important about them? I can't ever quite tell. Um, it's an interesting... It's like a cool thing to puzzle over, but it never clarifies. Well, it just seemed like it could be a scene from a movie, you know, or the end of a story or something. Like, right. it in its mute um, facticity and a kind of extreme set of facts, you know, um, said everything, but I don't really know what, what, what the message from it was. It's still there on the side of the road if you want to drive up the 15 and yeah, I'll go offer check. him some assistance. Thresholds is a production of LitHub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. 